0: Well, we're continuing our series called Live and Learn, and we've said that uh, life is a developmental journey where we're meant to reconnect with our creator, Christ, in trust, and then from there to develop to be a Christ-like version of ourself. And within that context, God gives us lots of different learning experiences or, or situations that promote our learning. Uh, last week, we dealt with a tough one that gives a lot of valuable benefits, and that was adversity. Adversity is a painful but a great teacher. And now today we deal with the toughest of all, and that's failure. Uh, We don't think of failure in fond terms. We don't ever want to fail. We certainly don't usually think of it as being beneficial in some way or promoting learning. But the truth is some of the most lasting, important uh, lessons that we can learn in life actually do come through failure wish they were all funny, like Max's, but uh, you know and I know they're not. So I'm going to ask you to do what I ask people in the first service to do. This message is probably going to get a little bumpy, a little uncomfortable, but if we're going to derive the maximum benefit, it's going to call for each of us to be willing to, to open our hearts the fullest that we can and allow God to kind of get real close, shine some light, probe around, and bring us to a place of strength and healing Uh, hopefully at the end of it. Well, there were a group of students from Strayer University in New York City and uh, they had an idea that they would put a board on a street corner in New York City and have people write on it their greatest regrets. Write your biggest regret. Now, interestingly enough, as people went by, they did. And here's some of the things that were written. Burning bridges, uh, not making the most of every day, not being a better friend, never speaking up, not being a good husband, should have spent more time with the family, staying in my comfort zone, not saying I love you, never applying to med school. Now, when I read those, and then the title is Your Biggest Regret, the thing that I know, having you know, circled around the sun a lot of times now in my life, and knowing people the way I do, is that I don't think those were their biggest regrets. I think those were what you and I would both call socially acceptable regrets. How many are tracking with me, you know what I'm saying? You write down the things that you know, they're kinda true, but they're not our biggest regret because the biggest regrets, they shake us to our core. Uh, they, They actually can make us sick when we are forced to reflect back on them. And we don't casually write them on boards. So that brings us to kind of a second level of failure. And in this message today, We're going to deal with what I consider the most serious level of failure. Uh, The one that can shape us or deform us the most. Now, you know, we all fail in things like, you know, you may fail at some skill that you try or some business endeavor. We're not talking about those. We're talking about those failures that are a part of us. Uh, It is us as a human being failing. Now, there's a guy named Ira Glass. He's a uh, host and producer of a show called The American Life on NPR. I'm sure all of you are loyal listeners to NPR. (laughs) But anyway, uh, Ira Glass has this to say about regrets. He says, some regrets just never go away. People tell us they forgive us. We try to forgive ourselves, and we still know we did wrong. We hurt somebody. It was real. And that feeling, it can immobilize you. If you're lucky, it teaches you something that you take into other situations. But I think often it's just like this pebble in your shoe that teaches you nothing. It doesn't slow you down, really. It just hurts. It just hurts in this way that does not stop hurting. And some of us know that experience. Uh, the failure still hurts He goes on to talk about Frank Sinatra's song. Glass refers to the song My Way by Frank Sinatra, where Sinatra smugly sings, Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. And then Ira Glass goes on. He says, oh, really? Too few to mention? Not me, buddy. Not most people. If you don't have regrets, it means you haven't screwed up. It means you haven't had your heart broken. It means you haven't been bloodied. It means you haven't failed You haven't failed. Like, why even live? Why even live a life? And I think Glass is getting at something. The kind of failure that we don't write on boards or speak glibly about, it's that kind of failure that it brings us to the point where we feel like, I wish that there was some way I could just erase my existence. I I wish that I could just go back and be born over again and never make these kind of hurtful mistakes again it's that kind that that every time we think about it it makes us uncomfortable it makes us feel as I said earlier a little bit sick it is not something that we're very glib about but it's something that if we don't process it with Christ our creator alone and that is the only way That we can get healing of these. I'm going to tell you something. You can go to any psychologist, psychiatrist. You can take any kind of psychotic medication. You can bury yourself in ceaseless activity. You can become addicted to something to numb your soul. Nothing will heal you or I with these kind of personal failures. Except a real close, uncomfortable, but healing experience with our God, our King, our Creator, and our Savior. That's Christ. Now... Every time I think about these kind of experiences, there is a song, we've sung it before in the past that comes to my mind, because sometimes a song can capture a feeling, and that's what I want you to try to capture today. I I want you to capture the feeling, the sick feeling that comes to us with the kind of failure I'm talking about. You'll see in a minute when we go to scripture what kind of failure. And, And then I want you to also feel the flicker of hope that comes up when we deal with the failure appropriately. And there's one song that was written back in 2007, Uh, Alicia Key sings it, and to me it epitomizes the feeling. There's one verse from it that I'd like to share with you. It goes, although the song is very relationally oriented, I want you to take it in a more objective fashion. It says, yes, I was burned, but I call it a lesson learned. Mistake overturned, so I call it a lesson learned. My soul has returned, so I call it a lesson learned another lesson learned. Let the feel of the failure and then the hope that comes back when we feel like we've learned something from it. Let let, let that feeling touch your heart as Jasmine shares that with you.
1: He broke my heart and now it's raining just to rub it in I'm at your I feel so crazy about it You say I told you so You saw it long ago You knew we had to go I finally came around I'm back on solid ground Can't let it get me down It's alright It's alright It's alright It's alright
0: like I say, for me, it just captures the feeling. Uh, So how can we get from that place to where it's sickening us, crippling us, haunting us, tormenting us, uh, making us uncomfortable a little bit, maybe each day, uh, just being in our own skin to that place where we say, okay, burned, but lesson learned. That's where we want to go in this journey. Now to introduce Our main subject today, why don't you turn in those Bibles that are near you on the chair to page 1192. It'll be Luke chapter 22 you're looking at. And as you're turning there, I'm going to kind of introduce, uh, we're going to start Luke 22 verse 31. But the person we're going to look at is the person that I think uh, probably knew more about these feelings of failure than maybe anyone in biblical history. And the person is Peter. Peter. When you read about Peter's story, you know, he's always the number one guy when Jesus lists the apostles. Peter was Jesus' chosen leader. When when Jesus meets him, he says, I'm going to change your name to the rock. And, of course, he was a very impulsive guy. He was anything but a rock. But Peter is the guy that was the first one of the apostles to say, Jesus really is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. He's the guy that when Jesus was walking on the water and Jesus said, come on out. He was the only one that got out of that boat. And he did walk on the water for a little while, got his eyes off Jesus and started to sink. But at least he got out. And so Peter is always a key one. When Jesus did certain miracles like raising the little girl from the dead, he would take Peter, James, and John. When Jesus was transfigured and allowed his inner divinity to shine through his skin, who was there? Peter, James, and John. Peter. He's always the key one. He was the chosen leader by Jesus. Jesus. When we come to this portion of Scripture, it's the end. It's the last night that Jesus is with his disciples. Within hours, he's going to be crucified. He has forewarned them of all the things that are going to take place, the fact that they're all going to run, they're going to desert him. And we'll pick up in verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, which was another name that Jesus used for Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan "...has demanded to have you all," meaning all the disciples, "...to to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not..." What is the word? "...fail. When you have turned back..." Notice that. "...when you have turned back..." Not if. "...strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, "...Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death." In Mark's version... Peter went on to say something a little more. He said, listen, all the rest of them may abandon you, but I'll never abandon you. I'll go to death with you. So he he kind of put himself above all the rest of them. Luke was kinder, not putting that emphasis there. But he said, Lord, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Jesus replied, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. Or denied that you, have no, that you know me three times. Or three times that you know me. Now, let's jump to verse 54. Then they arrested Jesus, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. When they had made a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a slave girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man was with him too. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him. And then a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour still, another insisted, Certainly this man was with him because he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know, that, I don't know what you're talking about. at that moment, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. And after all these years, it's almost impossible for me to read that verse and not myself weep. Um, it's It's a... Deep, deep feeling that's expressed there. Peter was absolutely shattered, absolutely heartbreaking, broken, failure. The kind of failure that I really want to talk about today, it's not failing at some endeavor, you know, some business endeavor or something like that. No, it is the personal failure. It is when you and I fail as a human being. It is when we fail to be faithful to God, faithful to other human beings. It's, it's a moral failure. Call it whatever you want. It's failure of the worst kind. It is the failure that we never wanted to believe that we were capable of. Peter didn't. He was sincere when he said, Lord, the rest of them may abandon you, but I'll never abandon you. You and I have this capacity as human beings to believe that we are what we want to be instead of what we really are. And sometimes when we get glimpses of what we really are, apart from Christ, apart from God's sustaining grace, it literally sickens us inside. It shows us a part of ourself that is so frightening and so loathsome that we cannot believe that it exists. And frankly, we get to a place where we wish we didn't exist. And Peter was right there. Those hours after this that he wept bitterly and then Jesus was crucified and he saw the brutality of it all. And then Jesus was buried and and his hopes must have sunk at that point. The feelings that Peter would have gone through, the feelings of failure, would have been the most uh, excruciating feelings that a human being can ever feel. It's when it matters to you the most, when, when you believed in yourself the most, and yet you completely crash and burn. And what do you do? What do I do? When there's no excuse for the failure, there, there's no turning it back. When it's very apparent to everyone around, I mean, all the other followers of Jesus, the fellow apostles, they heard Peter boast. They had been around him for three years. He had walked with Jesus, lived with them for three years. And now, how does he face them again? He knew that Jesus had called him to be the leader of them all, and now he was anything but a fit leader At least the way human beings view fit leaders. And so what do you do with yourself when you no longer know who you are? You don't no longer know what you are. You ever been to that place? It's kind of like what Ira Glass was talking about. When you fail in the way that Peter failed, the way that I'm talking about today, it's not something we glibly deal with. It's something that hurts. It's something that brings us to that place again and again where we wonder, is there any hope for somebody like me? Is there any forgiveness for somebody like me? What, what does God think of me? What, what do people think of me? What, what do I even think of myself at this point? What in the heck am I as a human being? How could I, I'm sure Peter was, how could I betray the most beautiful, wonderful person that the planet ever put forth? How could I do this? How could I in the moment... Of crisis, when I should have been the strongest, how could I turn into something like this? You ever sat on the side of the bed and had to have that conversation with yourself about something? Sometimes we treat failure too flippantly, and unfortunately, it can't have its redeeming value when we do that. And I'm not saying to go on and endlessly beat Beat yourself and torment yourself. I'm not saying that that's the issue. But I'm saying there's an appropriate way, a God-ordained way that you and I have to process failure. And that's what I want to take you through. And we're going to see this in Peter's life. First thing that we have to do, the most painful thing of all, is owning our failure. There's a couple verses I want to share with you. It says, but if we own up to our sins, notice that if we own up to, I'm going to call it our failures, our sins, God shows that he is faithful and just by doing what? Forgiving us. Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, before this night's over, you're you're going to deny me three times. but, But when you return... Pray, uh, you know, strengthen your brothers. I'm, I'm praying for you now that your faith doesn't fail. When you return, he knew he was not disappointed. He was not surprised by Peter's failure. Can you ever, can I ever surprise God? Uh, let, 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 let's get real, real serious and personal. How many of you have ever personally felt like, God must be so disappointed with me? Come on, let, let's, let's have a minute of honesty. But have you ever thought through it technically, that it's impossible For God to be disappointed with me, with you, with any of us, he would have to be surprised by what we do. He already told Peter. Peter didn't surprise him by his unfaithfulness, by his breakdown. He told Peter, he says, listen, I've prayed for you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. When you return, he knew he was going to fall away. He said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. God can never, let this sink into your heart, and I'm telling you, it goes against everything that we want to believe or feel that is right as human beings. Believe this in your heart. You and I can never, ever disappoint God because in order to disappoint God, we would have to surprise God, and he knows everything about you and everything about me, the things that we don't want to believe, the things that we would never believe, he knows in advance, and his grace accepts it all, and his provision has prepared to, just like with Peter, to restore us. Not if we fall. Usually it's when we fall. So let's look at a second version of that same verse from uh, the New American Standard. Now if I can go back once. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the one says if we own up to our sins, the other one says if we confess, it's the same thing. Now let me share something with you. There's two levels of confession. We're owning up to our sin or owning up to our failure. All right. The one is we just say what I did was wrong. Clearly wrong. I have no excuse. I'm not going to rationalize it. I'm not going to blame shift. I'm not going to legitimize it. I'm not going to minimize it. It was wrong. It was wrong in your sight, God. I have no excuse it was wrong. That's stage one confession. And a lot of times we stop there. But if you stop there, you don't get that cleansing that that verse talked about. It says he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Forgiving is one thing. Cleansing is another thing. Let me show you how god's spirit will do a cleansing work in us you go to stage two confession or stage two owning your failure so stage one is this is what i did stage two is this is why i did it here's what my real motives were i was selfish i was self-indulgent I was self-absorbed, I was greedy, I was manipulative, whatever it might be. It's when you and I, we pull that mask off, we stop trying to lie to ourselves or God, and we just let the raw, ugly sewage of our soul come out in the light of God's loving, redeeming mercy. Unless you've done that, you have no idea how painfully uncomfortable that is. It's when you look in God's light at what you really are and what you are really capable of, what I really am, what I'm really capable of, apart from God's restraining grace and sustaining grace. And so you confess it and you confess what your lousy, inappropriate motives were. And I'm not talking to you as some dude preaching down to you. I'm talking to you as a guy that's been there and done that and it's excruciating, it's agonizing. It's those failures when you let God down, you let people down, you let yourself down, and you have no excuse. And you wonder to yourself, I'm sure Peter wondered, where do I go now? Who am I? Am I still the, how do I ever lead these guys? Jesus wanted me to be the leader. I can't even face him. I'm betting you that when he gathered with those guys later on that day, and it says he did, he was one of these, you know, with his head down just off in the corner, probably couldn't look at the rest of him in the eye. He had already bragged about how he'd be the only one faithful and wondered to himself, who am I now? What what am I? Would it just be more noble to walk away from Jesus altogether? Maybe I should just do what Judas did and just hang myself because that, that at least would be noble. I'd be giving myself what I deserve. You ever been there? Have you ever felt so convicted about the awfulness of your soul? Your real self. That you would just love to disappear from existence. There's this, this battle that goes on where you want to live and you wish you didn't exist or ever existed simultaneously. Because you see something in yourself you just, you just didn't want to ever believe was there. You ever been there? Unless you're very willing to go there with Christ and a clear picture of God's love. It's a place where human beings can't exist for very long. We'll do something to opt out of that, and yet it's a necessary part If we're ever going to be overcomers of our failure, we have to be owners of our failure. And I mean owners on a real serious personal level, a level that hurts, a level that nearly makes you sick, a level that might bring you, like Peter, to weeping bitterly. And I'm not trying to say that we can weep and atone for our failures and our sins. We certainly cannot. You know that. I know that. But I can tell you one thing. When your heart is sufficiently broken and God in his light gives you a glimpse of you, yourself, what you are, and your failure sort of brings all of that up into the light and you really look at yourself for what you are, it will cause many times for you and I to weep bitterly. And I mean you weep where you almost feel like your insides are going to come out. That doesn't pay for anything. That's not necessary. We're all wired different. But I'm just trying to say that when you see things the way they are, it's not unusual for it to happen. Now, the good news was Jesus was there ready to restore him. He already knew the fall was coming. He had already prayed for him. And the same is true for each and every one of us. We that have returned to our God and King, Christ, in trust, in faith, and have become faithful followers. He's there for us. Listen to what it says in Psalm 37. King David knew about this. He said, The Lord guides us in the way that we should go, and he protects those who please him. If they what? If they fall. They will not stay down because why? The Lord will help them up. He said, Peter, Satan's desire to sift you like wheat. I've prayed for you. When you return, strengthen your brothers. The Lord was already praying, helping him up, helping to restore him. When you've put your faith and trust in Christ... And become his follower. God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He is not disappointed in you. He is not shocked at your failures. This is not to give you a permission slip to plan some failure. That's just foolishness. Okay? But there's foolish, foolishness in all of us. But he's with you. And he's waiting. He's waiting to restore you. But part of restoration, the kind of restoration that's going to bring lessons learned, Good lessons, valuable lessons, lasting lessons, soul-shaping lessons. They come when we own, when we own this thing. Some of the things that you can't learn in any other way that Peter learned was, when you fail sufficiently, some people will forever brand you, and you will never, ever have their approval, their trust, their respect Ever again I'm sure that Peter experienced that That it didn't matter what happened There were some people And that's a hard place to be in It brings us to that place where not only do we know That some people are never going to trust us again Never going to believe us again Never going to like us again Or always going to reject us But there's that part in us that says And you know what I don't blame you one bit You have every right To feel that way And frankly, folks, until we get there, we haven't been sufficiently humbled by our failure. When you're sufficiently humbled by your failure, which Peter was, you can accept that some people are going to forever reject you, ever brand you, never trust you again, and you say, you know what? I get it. I deserve that. But you don't give up. You keep moving on. Peter went back to the followers of Christ he's continued to gather with him he continued waiting and watching and of course he ran to the tomb when the news came that Jesus rose from the grave and of course later on Jesus has a very intense personal conversation with him that I'll talk to you about a little later but there's things that we can learn through failure we can't learn in any other way and one of them is humility and humility in Peter's case in my case probably yours it usually comes through humiliation. Can you imagine what Peter felt like? He was the guy that had popped off and said, everybody else might bail on you, Jesus, but not me. I'm the guy that you can always depend on, but it wasn't so. And so when you and I are sufficiently humiliated, if we stay there and trust God, it starts to give birth to something called Humility, authentic humility. And humility is sanity. Humility says, I know that in me there's really no good thing. I know that I can't do anything apart from Christ that's of any value. I really know this. I don't just say it because it's written in Scripture. I know it. I have seen what I'm capable of apart from Christ. And we start living very dependent upon God. Day to day, minute to minute, second to second. We we really are dependent. We don't just talk about it in a religious way. We really are dependent. And that's sanity because, you see, When we live as though we're independent of God, it's just insanity. You can't even control. I can't control the next brainwave, the next breath, the next heartbeat. We're really dependent creatures. We just don't live that way. But sufficient failure will humiliate you. And that can, if we're wise, if we're careful, It'll start giving birth to humility, and from humility can come all kinds of good things. We start being those that take a pause instead of making impulsive decisions. We know that we have to watch our souls and be vigilant. We know that we have to stay inwardly connected to Christ and to ourselves and, and watch the movements of our soul. We know that we need to listen to the advice and the feedback of other people. Prior to that, maybe we were stubborn and impulsive and hard-headed, and we wouldn't listen to anybody readily. I want to ask you for hands on that one, how many of you are hard-headed and don't listen to anybody. But I've been that way. <laughs> but I'm telling you, failure will change all that. And you get humble. You get teachable. You welcome critique. You welcome feedback. You welcome advice. You're not defensive anymore. Ironically, you get a little freer than what you've ever been before. When you have been utterly humiliated... <laughs> I read this book when I was a young Christian. Two years into my Christian life, I read this book by a guy named George Gregory Mantle. The title was Beyond Humiliation. (laughs) And I read it, and I couldn't understand it. I mean, you know, it was talking about a deeper walk with Christ, but I was too young to understand it. But the title, Beyond Humiliation, think about that. How does a person get beyond humiliation, beyond embarrassment, if that makes more sense to you? But I know now what that means. Because I think I've been beyond. I think I am pretty nearly beyond humiliation. And it came by failure. And here's the irony. It brings tremendous freedom. Before you and I, most people, Peter certainly, we lived to a certain degree not quite authentic. We're trying to always impress people, show people, prove something to people, prove something to ourselves. But when you're shattered and broken and you see what you are, apart from God's grace There's nothing left. You'd just well be marched down the highway naked with feathers, you know, all over you. It's like, yeah, what else? You're right, you're right. I'm an idiot. You're right, you're right. But it frees you up because now... You live for what is really important. And when you fail, you find out what you believe is really important. What really matters more than anything. And I think Peter found out that more than anything, no matter how humiliated he was, no matter how beaten down he was, he stuck with the disciples. He waited. He was hoping. He stayed true to Jesus because he knew that, that the thing that mattered most to him was his relationship with his creator. Is that, is that true for you and I? That's a critical thing. That failure can teach us what's really most important. My own survival, my own self-gratification, my own reputation. Or God, really. Outside of church, God, really. Psalm 145, it gives us more encouragement. It says, The Lord helps those who have been defeated or who fail, and he takes care of those who are in trouble. We have to remember this, that our failure doesn't disappoint him. It doesn't shock him. He's going to stay with us. He's faithful. He's loving. He's good beyond anything we deserve or understand. It just completely shatters me, God's kindness and faithfulness and patience with me, with people. Sure, Peter felt the same way. So owning failure is a key to overcoming failure. Now, there's three things I want to share with you very, very quickly. When we fail, first of all, it is critical how we respond to it. Let me share this from uh, Coach John Wooden, tremendous basketball coach. He said, failure isn't fatal, but failure to what? To change might be. When you and I fail, it should be clear that we must respond to this by changing, by growing. We cannot stay the same person. I'm sure Peter knew that critically. The second thing is we need to rethink things when we fail. Here's a quote from uh, D- Dennis Waitley. He's a motivational speaker, a uh, book writer. He said, failure should be our teacher, not our what? Undertaker. It's not over. We feel like it's over. It'd be easier for it to be over. Failure is delay, not defeat. It is a temporary detour, not a dead end. So we need to respond by changing. We need need to rethink failure. It's not the end. Peter probably felt like it was the end, but it wasn't. And then finally from a lady that is a a writer of about 25 different books, Gina Showalter, she said, Giving up is the only sure way to what? To fail. And yet that's exactly what we usually think about when the failure is big enough. We feel like, I'm done, man. It's just, it's just easier, it's more noble just to give up, just to go off and sort of fade away somehow. That's how we feel. It's very humbling and difficult to stay in the trenches and walking through life and still trying to be who God created us to be and still trying to do what God created us to do when everything inside of us has no confidence anymore that we have the ability to do it. But that's a good place to be because it shifts our confidence from ourselves to God. And that's the place that it should have been to start with. So when it comes to this business of not just owning our failure, but overcoming our failure, here's the key to it. This phrase right here. Humbly following Christ transforms failure. Now I'm going to tell you something. That's easy to say. That is very hard to do. Humbly following Christ transforms failure. Put yourself in Peter's place he was the guy he was the leader he he was the big the big shot he was the one that was the spokesman and he's utterly failed so what did he have to do he had to continue to just humbly in his broken failed estate with no excuse whatsoever he had to just keep humbly following christ and he did so and Christ did his transforming work in him about 50 days after the crucifixion this same Peter who had denied Jesus three times he stands there with a city packed with a hundred thousand people on the festival of Pentecost and some of the people that had crucified Jesus right in the crowd he preaches to them you really messed up Jesus was the Messiah he is the Messiah he's risen from the grave and if you don't change your minds about him if you don't turn to him your sins will be on you forever he is your only salvation and he preaches and 3,000 people at one point they turned to Christ you can read about it in Acts chapter 2 he went from being the man that was a broken cowardly failure a moral failure to being a bold spokesman for Christ now think about the battle he had to fight inside how about how about maybe Peter's thinking you know I'm not worthy to do this you know how about you, John? You're worthy. I failed Jesus. You know, I, I, I bailed on him when he needed me most. H- how about you, Andrew? I'm, I, I just, I'm not worthy anymore. It's very hard sometimes to take God's grace. That's the other thing we learn through failure. It's easy to sing about grace. It's easy to talk about, oh, amazing grace. But when you have no excuse for your failure and you loathe your own existence because of your failure... And you see that God still loves you. He still wants you. He's still faithful. He's still going to do things in you and through you. He still wants to express himself through you. You, you just get shocked at God's grace. And it, it grabs a hold of your heart in a way that unless you've had it happen, you don't understand what I'm saying. It changes you. And it shows that our God is so worthy of all of our devotion and adoration. Humbly following Christ transforms failure proverbs 24 16 it says though a righteous man falls how many times seven now for some of you this is not a pass this is not saying oh boy i still have six more to go uh, it's not the idea of the verse but it's just saying that's how good our god is though a righteous man and that's a righteous man that's a man that's returned to christ in trust though a righteous man falls seven times he will get up but the wicked will stumble into ruin. And then from Peter, here's Peter now writing as an old man, long after the events of his fall. He says, all of you should treat each other, and what's his word? With what? Humility. Peter, where'd you learn that one from? (laughs) From that failure. He's saying, guys, I know by experience, don't trust in yourself. Don't think you've got what it takes apart from Christ because you don't. All of you should treat each other with humility. Be kind, be compassionate. That's the other thing that failure does. It tends to break our heart. And when it breaks our heart, it shatters all our defenses. It rips to pieces all of the guards that we had in place. And that is a grand opportunity for these hearts of ours, these feelings of ours, To come alive and we can start to have compassion and patience and gentleness and kindness for other people. Some of you know just what I'm talking about. It was your failure that brought those Christ-like virtues to birth in your soul. It was not your success. But it was your failure that made you kinder and gentler and more loving and compassionate. If I could go back. Treat each other with humility, for as it says in Proverbs, God opposes the proud but he offers grace to the humble. So bow down under God's strong hand. When the time comes, God will lift you up. He restored Peter to full leadership amongst the apostles. Since God cares for you, let him carry all your burdens and worries. You know what, I wish I could tell you that your failure won't still haunt you at times. I wish I could tell you that it won't come back to your memory, maybe even in your dreams, that it won't make you once again feel like crawling out of existence from your own skin. But that would be a lie because it will. But when it does, you've got to go right back to that place and say, my God was not surprised, and he loves me, and he is with me, and he really forgives me, and he'll cleanse and restore me. That's not an easy place to be because we just feel like it's not fair. We feel like I should be punished. And it's a hard thing sometimes to accept God's amazing grace. Book of Lamentations, the Israelites had gone into the Babylonian captivity, and and it's still God is speaking to them. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Some of us will have to remind ourselves every morning, God, your grace is there. You have forgiven me. You are cleansing me. We'll have to remind ourselves again and again and again because that failure will want to creep back up and torment us and paralyze us if we allow it. But it's not supposed to. It didn't, Peter. Jesus had one crucial conversation with Peter in John chapter 21. They were they were walking together. It was after he had risen from the dead. Jesus was on shore. He had made a breakfast for the guys that were fishing. And he, and he says to Peter, he says, hey, hey, come on, man. Let's let's walk a little. So they're walking and he, and he says to Peter, he says, uh, Peter, do you love me? Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. And Peter says, Lord, of course I love you. He says, Well, Okay, feed my sheep. Walk a little bit more. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, yeah, you, you know I do. He says, okay, well, well, take care of my lambs. Walks a little bit more. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know. You know. And he says, well, then shepherd my sheep. Everything, I think, in Peter felt completely unworthy. You've got to hear this, to do any of those things. And Jesus is causing him to feel the pain in the presence of God's loving grace so that he can then go forward with confidence that God saw him fully restored. You've got to get along with God and do business with your failure to get the full restoration that he really wants us all to have and to live with. Let me give you four quick illustrations of biblical heroes, heroes in the Bible. Let's look at a few quickly. Moses, big hero, led the Israelites out of Egypt. You know, for 40 years he, he was uh, faithful to God except in his last year. The Israelites are complaining like they had been complaining through the whole 40 years. This time it's about water. And the Lord tells Moses, he says, hey, listen, I want you to go and I want you to talk to this rock. Tell the rock to give forth water and it'll give forth water to the people and they'll stop whining and complaining. Well, Moses had made the mistake of internalizing his exasperation with the people for 39 years. He had never processed his anger. This is a warning to some of us. He had never processed his anger right. So he gets to that rock and he takes that staff that the Lord had given him and he, and he Bangs the crap out of that rock. And he, he says, you a bunch of whining, complaining, you know, rascals, you. Here, take water. I'll give you water out of this rock. Read it on your own. You, you got the reference. And the Lord tells him, he says, you know, Moses, you distrusted me and dishonored me amongst people because of that. Buddy, you're not going to go in the promised land. They're all going to, their, their kids are going to go, but you're not going to go. He fails at the end of his life. Look, if I could go back. Elijah, great prophet. He has this big showdown with the false prophets of Baal. 450 of them are executed, and then Jezebel, the queen of the time, says, I'm going to kill you. You're going to be just like those dead prophets as soon as I get my hands on you. And this man who showed such courage runs like a little coward, and he hides under a juniper tree, and he says, Lord, I've had it. Just kill me. This is too hard. I don't want to do this anymore. Wah, wah, wah. But what was it that tripped him up? Unrealistic expectations. He felt like just because he got that one spiritual victory, everybody was going to go with him. But now here's what's interesting about both of these failures. Both of these failures, Elijah, first of all, is taken up alive into heaven seven years later. God was obviously pleased with him. He's the only one other than Enoch that's ever had that done. But then when Jesus was transfigured on Luke 9, chapter, you know, chapter 9, verse 30, two people appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses, who had been dead about 1,500 years, and Elijah, who had been in heaven for about 900 years at that point, very much alive. These two guys were still very pleasing to God, though they were big-time failures. Let's look at two more. How about this for failure? King David, adultery and murder. He commits adultery, and then he has the husband murdered to cover it up. But he serves on after God forgives him for 19 more years faithfully, sees to it that the temple is built and restored, and God Always compares every king to David and says, he's my man. He's he's the only one that was really after my heart. And then you read in Ezekiel 37, 24, he's going to be king over all of Israel during the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, the millennial reign. Obviously, he was restored. And then one last one, John Mark. John Mark starts out on the first missionary journey with the apostle Paul and Barnabas. A year into the journey, he gets homesick. He gets scared. Who knows what it was? But he bails. He goes back home. They go out on the second missionary journey in 49 A.D., and Paul says, no way, no how. I'm not taking that kid with us again. He bailed. He's not prepared. I'm not taking him. Barnabas says, fine, I'll take him, and they split. Paul says he's not fit, but then 11 years later, he's writing good things. Paul is writing good things about John, Mark, and Colossians, and then at the end of his life, 21 years later, he's saying, Please send John Mark to me because he's very valuable to me. This guy was completely restored, Scripture-backed it. The Spirit of God wants us to know it. Let me go further. The Holy Spirit chose this failure, this young failure, to be the writer of the gospel, Mark. And so God takes failures like Peter, like Moses, like Elijah, like David, like John Mark, like me, like you. And if we allow it, if we'll humbly follow him, he'll transform our failure. There's an interesting uh, thing that Japanese people do with pottery. It's this word right here, kinsukuroi, or golden repair. And this explains, uh, actually it was supposed to be a slide before that. If I could go back to it. There it is. Um, Kinsukuroi celebrates imperfection as an integral part of the story, not something to be disguised. The artists believe that when something has suffered damage and has a history, it becomes what? More beautiful. Now if I could go to the pottery images. You can see some actual, what they do is they take gold when they glue the pottery back together. And they want you to see the breaks. They want you to see the gold. So it is with you and I. Our failures, redeemed, cleansed, transformed by God's grace, can become some of the most beautiful attributes of our lives, especially to others that are equally broken, equally scared, equally confused, equally in need of mercy and acceptance. And so the question becomes, what will we do? Will we we own our failures? Some of us are at that stage where we're still denying, we're still legitimizing, we're still minimizing, we're still rationalizing. And, And I can tell you by experience Until you own it, you're just just cheating yourself and tormenting yourself unnecessarily. It won't work. There's not a psychotic drug that'll fix you. There's not a psychiatrist or psychologist that can fix you. There's not enough busyness on the planet to fix you. You've got to own it. You've got to own it with a loving God. Then some of us, we're on the second part of this. and, And have we taken the steps... For full restoration. God wants to restore us, but, but are we moving in the direction that we'll allow that? Or are we making ourselves available enough to God through his word, through his people, through, through whatever means might be open to us? Or, or, or are we kind of keeping a distance because we're still uncomfortable? Maybe this is the day you say, I can still be every single thing that God ever intended me to be. Do you really believe that? I, let me, can I see your hands? How many believe that? I can be every single thing. Doesn't matter how old I am, how many times I fail. I can still be every single thing God intended me to be. Some of you are not so sure. Be sure you can. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about God's grace. Will you take that step to be everything that you once thought in your heart God intended you to be and do everything that you once thought in your heart He intended you to do? It's still available. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are a kind, a patient, a restoring God, a God that takes all the brokenness, all the ugliness, all the chaos, and you put it together and turn it into something that shows forth your beauty and blesses the lives that come across our path. Help us to embrace fully your healing, your restoration process for failure. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.